This is the Flannery Podcast, our 19th episode. The issue, our Declaration of Independence from Mr. Trump. Stay tuned. First up, we have to discuss Donald Trump's back-to-back hate speeches this 4th of July weekend in the Dakotas and at the White House. It was an echo down the canyons of past hotly contested political campaigns, echoing the 60s strategy of segregationist George Wallace and Nixon's racist Southern strategy to win the White House in those days. Trump's hate knows no bounds and extends to his own supporters, putting them at risk to the virus by ignoring all safety practices as the daily infection numbers climb well over 55,000 a day, approaching 3 million infections total and 130,000 deaths nationwide. Republicans are pulling back from Trump, his hold my beer bravado, but the man with the loudest bullhorn Trump discourages safe conduct in the face of this pandemic. Trump invokes the political bad practices of Nixon and his vice president, Spiro Agnew, from years long ago. Second, we're going to talk in this podcast about the nation would cry from the streets to the courts and council chambers from Minneapolis to Washington, D.C. The public's cry to honor this nation's unfulfilled promise that we are all to be treated as equal, to reform the police, to do what has never been quite achieved and to resume that march toward a more perfect union that has been interrupted by Trump. More people, not just persons of color, have suffered the contempt of cop that persons of color experience. Many have seen the videos of hurt and hate and police violence and the failure to act to render justice. More understand that the problem of racism is not just the police. The pandemic has cast sunlight on those people hit the hardest, the black community and lower socioeconomic families that suffer. These are families who have been exploited for their work for less pay for years, barred from their fair share of their increased productivity that corporations' shareholders have enjoyed when these workers could have used their share of what they made to live better lives and to save, to make a cushion against this pandemic. I've invited Bill Bowie, a former congressional liaison for the U.S. Department of Labor, now in private law practice in Baltimore, and he's going to share what it means to be a black man in America and what threatened his hope when still a young man. Third, an issue that we just don't think about enough is how climate change, what I insist should be called global warming, has created a world more susceptible to all kinds of changes and dangers, including infectious diseases. I've asked Michael Town, an articulate spokesman who leads the Virginia League of Conservation Voters, to join us and to take us past the first news page that says, the pandemic has given us clean skies, to the second page to advise us that it's more complicated than that. And this, this pandemic is a product of our failure to respect our environment. Michael has worked on these issues nationally and locally for 19 years with leaders in this critical issue arena and with elected officials encouraging them to pass enlightened legislation. In other words, he has something to say worth hearing. Stay tuned. First up, 
We have had a 4th of July over this weekend, unlike any Independence Day the nation has ever seen, I believe. We can find no comparable 4th, not since Thomas Jefferson put his quill to parchment, drafting the Declaration of Independence from a monarch, a declaration supported by the moral and physical courage of those assembled in Philadelphia. Ordinarily, this annual celebration, contemplated as such by John Adams, is a time of political and patriotic nostrums that bring us together. But Mr. Trump was never suited to lead a people together. He is the great divider, a hater, a racist. I think of Trump as you would think of the dark side of the Hindu god Shiva as the destroyer, disregarding the law and our constitution, usurping the power of Congress, bending the courts to his aims, allying himself with what's corrupt and self-serving, lying for advantage, hating and using most anyone, discarding them when they no longer serve his purpose, and growing in strength as a potentate, a monarch like George III, rather than as the elected leader of a republic, concerned to preserve and protect the nation. Trump deigned that this 4th of July weekend would serve as an ego show worthy of Nero and to advance a presidential election campaign rather than as a celebration of the 4th. By the way, Nero loved the stage, had a self-indulgent life, varied sexual practices, a hairstyle fashioned after a vulgar charioteer, wore a garish scarf about his neck, and when he was suspicious of one of his dependent public figures, he'd banish him, you know, fire him. We've all heard about the fire that savaged Rome for six days in 64 AD, destroying 70% of the city. Some believe that Nero actually started the fire, and that's in fact because he used the land cleared after the fire to build his golden palace. Nero blamed the Christians for the fire. Any of that sounds similar? Trump is a latter-day Nero, celebrating a public show all about him, posing before a granite mountain carved with four of the nation's celebrated presidents, pushing his mug into the photo so it appears that the fifth figure who should be elevated to Mount Rushmore is his self. Trump held another of his Hitler-like campaign rallies on this land appropriated from Native Americans to embrace the statues of Confederate soldiers taken down in disgust by the people and to slander any and all Americans who insist we are equal and who decry racism. Comparing himself to Lincoln when Trump is much more like a latter-day Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Like Tulsa, Trump got a smaller crowd than he promised. Trump announced he would have 7,500 supporters show up at Mount Rushmore, but Politico reported he only got 3,700 persons. Trump has expressed strong support for the white supremacists and statues honoring Confederate soldiers who supported slavery and racism and were traitors to the country. He singled out, for example, Robert E. Lee. And I was talking about people that went because they felt very strongly about the monument to Robert E. Lee, a great general. Whether you like it or not, he was one of the great generals. I Trump has, in recent days, refused to change the name of American military bases from the names of Confederate soldiers and leaders. He said, and there's no explanation for this, he talks about these bases with those names as winning. That's a deep Southern view. I suppose that the South will rise again. His press secretary referred to these bases as fabled. That's amazing. I don't think they know what the word means. My administration will not even consider the renaming of these magnificent and fabled military installations. 
These monumental and very powerful bases have become part of a great American heritage and a history of winning, victory, and freedom. Our history as the greatest nation in the world will not be tampered with. Trump referred to those incidents challenging these symbols of racism as the acts of angry mobs because he seeks to protect these statues of Confederate soldiers, referring to Lee and others as our nation's founders. Well, how does he figure that, that there are founders? Lee was not a founder, nor Jefferson Davis, nor the other Confederate soldiers or leaders, traitors to the Union, fighting to preserve slavery. Trump charged that there were activists in America who were defacing our most sacred memorial, these statues, sacred, and releasing a wave of violence in our cities. There is nothing sacred about the misplaced honor that is having a statue that's undeserved in a public place, exalting the crimes of the South. As for violence in the streets, Trump and Barr conducted their own violence in the street when they cleared Lafayette Park with tear gas and rubber bullets so that Trump could have a photo op of himself holding a Bible. Now, now that is a desecration. This is what Trump said at Rushmore. The unhinged left-wing mob is trying to vandalize our history, desecrate our monuments, our beautiful monuments, tear down our statues and punish, cancel, and persecute anyone who does not conform to their demands for absolute and total control. We're not conforming. That's why we're here, actually. This cruel campaign of censorship and exclusion violates everything we hold dear as Americans. They want to demolish our heritage so they can impose their new oppressive regime in its place. Trump said we are the nation of Andrew Jackson. Really? Trump couldn't understand why anyone would want to tear down the statue of Andrew Jackson, a land speculator and territory taken from Native Americans. Jackson was a slave trader and, no competition, the most aggressive enemy of Native Americans in our history. Jackson, sure, was a hero in the War of 1812, but the war was also about expansion of our new nation into Florida, into Canada, into Native American territory. In 1814, Jackson fought the Battle of Horseshoe Bend against the Thousand Creeks and killed 800 of them. When the war ended, guess what? Jackson bought up the creek land. Listen to what Trump said about the people wanting the statue of Jackson to come down. Uh, last night, we stopped an attack on a great monument, the monument of Andrew Jackson in Lafayette Park. Trump said they want to demolish our heritage. How are these Confederate traitors any part of our heritage, of our remembered heritage? Trump considers the attack on these Confederate soldiers to be a cruel campaign of censorship that anyone would consider an attack on these people who advanced slavery, who betrayed our nation, who were lawless, that somehow or other to believe that would be an oppressive regime. Those are Trump's words. This would be an oppressive regime. And that if we were to tell our children's state our true history instead of the myth that he prefers would be to indoctrinate our children. Yeah, to indoctrinate them in the truth, objective, real 
factual truth. Our nation is witnessing a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values, and indoctrinate our children. It's ironic that Trump should choose Rushmore for this rally. The Lakota Sioux and others say that Mount Rushmore isn't just a piece of art they dislike. It's a piece of art they dislike that, to put it in European terms, has been forcibly installed in their own church, in their sacred lands. And they do believe that these lands are sacred. Um, right now, I, you know, for me, it's very hard to remain diplomatic in times like this um, due to the lack of consultation. You know, my people, it is in our DNA to, to fight for these lands, to defend these lands, um, and, and to protect what is sacred. And, and, you know, Mount Rushmore is carved on, on one of our most sacred mountains within the Black Hills, and, and the people, you know, are, are angry. And, and all I can do as a leader is stand back and, and support them, to stand with them and, and, you know, help them in every way that I can to, to do what's right. Plainly what we're dealing with in the case of Trump is a desperate politician falling in the polls who can think of no path to re-election, no campaign strategy, but to divide his haters from the rest of the nation. Trump is borrowing a page from Nixon's Southern strategy in the 60s to count on hate and voter suppression to steal another election. Stay tuned. The nation is better prepared today to recoil from a racist campaign than it was in the 60s. In the 60s, there was George Wallace who believed in separation of the races, segregation forever, he said. But from this cradle of the Confederacy, this very heart of the great Anglo-Saxon Southland, that today we sound the drum for freedom, as have our generation of forebears before us done time and again down through history. Let us rise to the call of freedom-loving blood that is in us and send our answer to the tyranny that clanks its chains upon the South in the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth. I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. There was a Southern strategy concocted by several, but a master at that propaganda was Lee Atwater. He offered to explain it to a reporter off the record. Well, now it's on the record. I can't play the whole tape since on the record, but part of it was to say in the 50s you could use the N-word, but then you had to get more subtle in your political language. We had to get the same political effect, but we had to use different language. Listen to the excerpt. Understand that it picks up after his discussion, that is Atwater's discussion of the N-word. Here's how I would approach that issue as a, as a statistician or a political scientist. No, as a psychologist, which I'm not, is, is how abstract you, you handle the race thing. In other words, you start out, and, and now y'all aren't quoting me. I, it's you start out in 1954 by saying, by 1968, you hurt your backfire, so you say stuff like uh, forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you get so abstract now, you're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and the byproduct of them is 
blacks get hurt worse than white. We had Nixon and his vice president running mate, Agnew, attacking the press even as they played upon the dog whistle of racism in the 60s to attract voters to their line on the ballot. Agnew had an expression he used to attack the Democratic views and the enemies of Nixon. This is a reproduction of that, and it's not in Spiro's natural voice, but it is accurate in its verbiage. In the United States today, we have more than our share of the nattering nabobs of negativism. They have formed their own 4-H club. The hopeless, hysterical, hypochondriacs of history. On the stump, Nixon left the lion's share of the dirty work to Spiro. Spiro Agnew made great pretense about being supportive of black voters. But even when he did that, he did it in a disparaging way. We heard a lot about those little old ladies in tennis shoes. I'm looking forward to the day when they can wear high heels again. They won't have to wear those tennis shoes to outleg the criminals on the city streets. When Nixon became president, Reagan called him and compared African leaders to monkeys and made fun of their footwork. There's no secret about how prejudiced these men were, how undeserving of leadership were these Republicans, and how we now have Trump ready to duplicate what they did to win office. Lee Atwater, in his stratagem, did appreciate something that I'm not sure Trump does, that the public was growing less supportive of plain, unvarnished political messages that were outright racist. This year, this time, I'm not sure that'll work. In fact, my sense of the nation is that we're on a move toward a place where Trump's brand of politics is unwelcome. In fact, just plain wrong. But I thought it would be useful to add some informed view of what this is all about from a voice who has lived as a black man in an America that just perhaps is making some progress toward equality in these difficult times. He's a good friend of mine, a former congressional liaison from the Department of Labor, and a practicing lawyer in Baltimore, Bill Bowie. Stay tuned. I'm glad to say we're with Bill Bowie. I got to know him when he was at the Department of Labor, and he was the congressional liaison, and we worked together on an American worker project, studying workers in America. And now he's following in the footsteps, uh, I would say, and he probably would be embarrassed to say, of Thurgood Marshall as a trial lawyer in Baltimore, Maryland, representing uh, the abused and misunderstood, my description. Actually, it's about civil rights and civil liberties. Bill, I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you, John. It's always good, it's always good talking to you. Yes. 
I obviously what I'd like to talk about, although I think of you as uh, a wonderful character in so many ways and such a competent professional, both on the Hill and in private practice, but you probably have uh, views about some of the racist incidents that have happened in recent years. And I thought I'd go back to the Eric Garner case, which always upset me, and I don't know how it affected you. But the fact that they could suffocate a guy with a chokehold and it be preserved on film. And to this day, that police officer has never been prosecuted, but he was only fired in recent days. What was your reaction to the Eric Garner matter? My, my reaction was a, a, a great feeling of sadness because I think it's beyond just him being really murdered. It, it, he's out there and, and all he really has is a grown man is to hustle these loose cigarettes. And if you really look at the situation, he's really not even allowed to do that. Um, police come in, and they really are overly aggressive, and they kill him. Right. And not only, do they, not only do they kill him, but nobody does anything about the fact that they killed him. And what is said to me as an African-American male is that not only are you extremely disadvantaged in this world, but we will even use your extreme disadvantage to kill you. And not only will we kill you, but we're going to do it in New York. The <laughs> symbol of freedom and justice for all, where the Statue of Liberty is. This is not Mississippi. This is New York. So, to make a long story short, I took that away as the situation where it just shows you. My father said something, and he said many things to me when I was a kid, but one of the things he disappointed, not disappointed, but was disappointing to hear was, he always said, People are just as racist in the North as they are in the South. And don't you ever believe otherwise. You know, and it made me think of that because it happened in New York. You know, the uh, my dad was a carpenter, electrician, and a plumber. And, you know, he, he said things to me like, uh, he would be a success as a parent if I, as his son, did better. He didn't have anything he said, but he could give me his good name. And... Your dad uh, suffered somewhat because of, of the racism of the time. And I'm taking advantage of the fact that we know each other. That you told me once right. he brought home an air conditioner. And he said something to you that meant a lot when you were a youngster. Uh, do you mind telling us about that? Yeah. Um, it, was, it was in July, a hot July. And um, he had saved up a couple of dollars from his paycheck. He worked for the city. And he was able to buy an air conditioner from a relative. He bought it home, we struggled to get it in the window, and we plugged it up, and it really didn't work that well. And he said, son, this is what we get as essentially being black people. We get, sec we get secondhand stuff that really doesn't work that well, and that's how it is. And I'm telling you, I kept a straight face with him. I didn't even respond, but I could have cried, because to me, it just did not bode well for what I would expect out of my own life in the future. It was actually scary. Yes, I would imagine it would be. How how old were you when that happened? Do you remember? I think I was like 12 or 13. I was big enough where I could help him move some stuff. Um, and I kind of understood what, the, what, what, what poverty was in the sense that where I lived at wasn't super bad, but where the air conditioning came from, my uncle's house, he lived in what we called the hood. It was a really bad neighborhood. I mean, it just, to me, it just it seemed like a bad situation altogether. So, um, but you can't complain. You can't complain about it because that's just the way the world is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, there's that. But you know, you made something of the world. I mean, how did, how, what, where did you get the gumption 
to say, I'm going to study law, I'm going to end up at the Department of Labor, I'm going to become a, a defense attorney. Where did that come from, given the fact that you respected and loved your father and he gave you this uh, quite challenging view of what your life could be like if you didn't make some some change in how you approach life? He, he did, but my mother was like a real gun-ho um, teacher. And she started off being a teacher at Baltimore City Public Schools. She moved up to a, a assistant principal, and then she became a principal, and she always instilled education in me. And um, it's a real funny story, but my father had went to law school. I usually don't tell a story. But my father had went to law school by borrowing money from my uncle, who was really almost like a loan shark. <laughs> and it was $900 a semester. It's a crazy story. Yeah, it's a and great my father, story. Yeah. My, my father went to the University of Maryland. But he had, a, he had like a drinking problem. He was able to graduate, but he went to law school at night. And he never had the confidence to take the bar exam. He stayed working for the city, ended his career there. And the, the good part about the story is he eventually came to work for me um, at my law office, where we worked together for about 10 years. As He worked as a paralegal. But the world had sucked the life out of him so bad that he did not have the confidence, even though my father is very bright and he's still alive, too, to take the bar exam, which, you know, we, we know can be challenging. Right. But well, my mother was just super confident, never kind of backed away from a challenge. Um, she was an African-American lady, but also spoke Spanish, um, and she was like this, this super woman that just stayed behind me my entire life. When I made mistakes, she was there to pick me up, and... I knew that I could graduate, now again, I've never told this story before, I knew I could graduate from law school because my father had graduated from law school. Mm -hmm. So it was no question that I could do it. Um, and I think I have a, my mother's moxie, so I was able to take the bar exam, pass it, and then go forward in life. Had a good set of parents, but they were extremely disadvantaged by it. And my father described it as systemic racism. That's the way he looked at it. Well, he did you a favor giving you that guideline. The the interesting thing about your story is that, you know, I, I said at the beginning, I was talking about Thurgood Marshall, and it is because I read it recently, it made me think of you and think it would be interesting for us to discuss this. Uh, Thurgood Marshall's dad also was kind of eclipsed by society, uh, had, had a drinking problem, and his mother was a teacher, and she'd studied uh, at uh, Columbia, and she had two sons, and one became a lawyer, and I think the other became a doctor, which was quite remarkable, and they lived in Baltimore. So uh, it, it just sort of, like you say, moxie, that, that's kind of it. You know, my view of getting out of the Bronx, which didn't involve any impediment because of color or race, uh, was similar. But what you had to do was uh, so much more challenging, I would think. Um, how, do you, how do you look at now the current uh, events in which Black Lives Matter and it seems to be more of a rainbow coalition, a sincere one, unlike the 60s where it was fractured and, 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 and divided, it seemed to me. And there seems to be a uniform demand for reforms. And George Floyd, although he was like other kinds of racist violence by police before, he seems to have been the catalyst for the nation to look at this more seriously and perhaps in reaction to Trump's manifest racism. What, what is your thinking about where we are today in this movement that seems to be catching on and may actually result in real real reforms this time? 
I'm, I'm very proud um, of society as a whole because this is the first time <clears throat> I saw black, white people, everybody, Asian, Hispanic, all together, really old and young, out there saying, hey, you know, we have to change the system. I think it took, it took a point where um, George Floyd was, you know, really, really murdered right there on video. Right. For people to say, hey, you know, we got to do something about this. And it's the power of video and these cell phones and um, being able to actually see. Because it's not kind of like he said, she said, because you can see everything. Right. So seeing everything and really seeing discrimination right in front of your face, I think, has made a change. And I think it's bigger than that, too. I think the young people especially, I just think they're different. They're, like, more accepting of... They're not, they're not, they're not, young people just really aren't that as racist. Mm-hmm. They're just not. Right. Um, for whatever reason, they didn't get hood, hoodwinked with this whole racism situation. And, and if you notice, what I noticed, even when it was real bad with the George Floyd situation, with the protest, and it, and it was really going this way and that way, I noticed that, you know, the black and white people and everybody else were out there, and, and no one was, they were all together, they were together. You they, know what I mean? They were together. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it was good to see. It was a it was a very positive thing to see. Kind of like just the opposite of the air conditioning incident I relate to you. It, what, from what we saw with the protest, it would bode well for the future that, you know, everything would be okay, that everyone would be able to move forward with life in, in harmony and racial harmony. What, what is your personal thought about why Eric Garner could be taped? And then several years later, we have a taping of another choking and uh, this time it's uh, George Floyd, and the reaction is so dramatically different. What What do you think changed in well, that, you know, those number of years? I think I think as the older generation, the, the, I hate to say, as the older people die, and the world naturally becomes less racist, this becomes more and more outrageous, um, as well as everyone in terms of really getting us having an understanding of what the rights are. There's a small kind of part to this too. I think COVID actually played a role in it because more more people of color are really dying from this. Um, and they, they started to point that out in the news because we really have, we don't really have good jobs. And that has been pointed out through COVID that we have the types of jobs where um, black and brown people have the type of jobs where you really have to go out. You can't, black people don't, and brown people don't have jobs generally where you can stay home and work from your house on a laptop. Right. You know, we don't, we're the bus drivers. We're the people that dump the trash. Um, we've been basically, I hate to say it, segregated to uh, lower class employment. And that's just the way it's been. So as a result of that, and having a work, you know, some real health care challenges, then there's been more COVID-19 deaths for uh, black people and brown people. And I was surprised that the media would even point it out, but, I mean, it's, it's We've been overrepresented in terms of COVID deaths. Um, yes. In terms, in terms of almost every jurisdiction. So I think that played a part in it too. And you know, probably no one will ever tell you that, but it's almost like, where does the racism end? In terms of if you're, if if you're, if you being subjected to, um, really not the same health care. Because let me tell you something. And I'm, and I'm, you know, being a person called being a black person, I don't want to get COVID and be stretched <laughs> out. And, and the doctor had to say, "Do I'm not gonna let Bill Bowie, this black person, live? Well, I'm not gonna let the white person live because right. I know 
because of systemic racism, Bill Bowie might not live. Right, the triage. <laughs> the triage would be unconsciously disfavoring you or consciously disfavoring you. You know, James, right. James Baldwin had this statement that I like, and I know he's controversial among some members in the black community, but <laughs> what he was saying, you know, when they asked him, what do you want? He says, I want you to ignore this, referring to his skin color. I want the same uh -huh. thing you want. That's all I want. And right. it's as simple as that, and I can't get that. So It is, it is, it is that simple, yeah. Yeah. So what do, what do you see as the remedy? Because I agree with you. It seems to me that, uh, you know, and, and we've been here before in other issues, guns uh, including race, and um, the question is, this one seems real, like we're really going to have reform. Uh, and what do you think that reform should be? Well, I mean, let me tell you. I think real racism is 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 as bad as everything is with with uh, police brutality on people of color. I really think the real racism is economic. I think the real racism is through employment. I think by putting you in a situation where you are less likely to earn more, it puts you in a severe disadvantage at life. So, hopefully, the real reform would be more diversity in the workplace at higher level jobs that's the real discrimination right okay my, my wife and i had a had a really interesting discussion about this at the house because we were watching the same thing we're talking about today george floyd eric on everything else and i said the real issue is when white people have to divide up the pie are they going to be willing to divide up the pie fairly economically and give up some of their white privilege and i told my wife this i don't know if they are Mm -hmm. We all jump up and down and say, oh, that's racist, that's racist. But then when somebody says, hey, maybe you shouldn't be the new manager of whatever unit it is. Maybe we should pick a person of color. Well, I don't know how everybody's actually going to feel about that when the rubber meets the road. So the quiet thing is, you know, most of the time we watch TV, everybody's jumping up and down police brutality. Well, you know, it's really economic, economic discrimination. Which is, which is killing us. That's the real problem. And I don't really know, to be honest with you, young or old, whether or not, and it's predominantly white people, whether or not they're willing to give up some of that privilege. Well, that's, I, that's I, the situation. Well, I think you're right. And, and it, the perception is very uh, selfish in the sense that uh, you can grow the pie. In fact, our whole theory of lifestyle is that we export our product in such a fashion that we can enjoy a lifestyle. But what's happened in the last 10, 15, or more years is that although productivity has increased in this country, nobody is getting their share of that growth. It's all going to the, uh, uh, the, the, the job creators, so to speak, which is job creators without compensation equivalent to what you produce. And I, I worked and supported Jesse Jackson when he ran for president. And, you know, he, he said a number of things that were interesting, but one of them was there's another kind of violence, economic violence, that puts people in a place that their health and safety are at risk, the morale of their families at risk, that their alternatives are narrow, and a system which criminalizes ordinary misdemeanor conduct and ruins their lives, putting these, these marks on them that prevent them from getting ahead in the society. And, and I, the, some of the proposals in the House, in this Congress, I think try to advance that. But you're right, the, the person who is 
uh, terrified of change management, uh, has to also confront the fact that our nation has got young people who are not afraid of, uh, of all of us succeeding together, all of us being in this together. But we have a lot of other people, and a lot of them wear MAGA hats, and uh, they don't see it at all. And white supremacy is really uh, Trump's campaign for re-election. I mean, Confederate soldier monuments, I'm not going to kneel uh, in support of uh, blacks who are suffering in the country. Uh, he sounds like a combination of the KKK and Nazis. And if that unworthy choice is what people take, I'd like to think that in America, especially now, especially this year, we outnumber those people, these kind of camp followers who are, are kind of, uh, I don't know how you, intellectual zombies of a sort, that they would follow blindly this kind of unfortunate uh, pathway. But uh, so let me ask you, because you live in the skin that is apparently uh, intolerable to a lot of white people. How do you feel? Do you feel optimistic, hopeful, or do you... Uh, I, I think things are probably going to change more, more than really... I think things are going to change as a result of older people passing away and the younger people getting older who have more of an open mind. Um, I really think there will be some reforms, especially on the police and, and, and what the police are allowed to do and what they can't do. What has not really been the real focus, again, has been the economic changes that are needed to put us on an even playing field to be able to compete in this wonderful place that we call the United States of America. So what Trump bets on and what he's been right about, and what I've always said that Trump was right about, was the fact that people are racist, which is why he started talking about the wall and everything else. I'm not even sure if Trump's a racist, but what I am sure about is Trump understands racism and how to use racism for his benefit. And when he talked about the wall and how bad illegal aliens are, guess what? Everybody said Trump wasn't going to win, and he won. So... Trump's betting on the fact that, despite the fact that people, because I, I really believe in my heart of hearts of this, that people say that Trump's bad and Trump's bad, but when they go to voting booth, they vote Trump. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is that they're not willing to give up their slice of their white privilege pie. That's the truth. That's, know, the, that's the truth. It, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is the antidote for your dad's uh, realistic and pessimistic forecast um, that the seeds of the success you've had despite racism is that you seized the bull by the horn, so to speak, and went forward, you know, because of your mom, because of what your dad had done, and then you bring him in, which right. is a which is a beautiful thing to have done. And what, right. what I would hope is that we'll see uh, enough whites, uh, a majority of the nation, finally take the bull by the horns and see the value of us being in this together. Now, that's a hopeful thing, and the truth will come to us when we see what happens on Election Day and whether or not the new Congress has the backbone they suggest they have while they're running for office this year to be elected instead of some of these Republican, no-neck, no-good racists. Yeah, but I, one thing I do want to say is, the one thing I have learned over the years is that I think it's, it, it's you can you can say the Republicans are racist, but I think the Democrats are just as racist. And that's, as a, as an African American male, at I'm about to turn fifty this year. I told my father this. 
My father's when I when I say diehard Democrat, <laughs> that's what diehard Democrat would go to war to be a Democrat. I see it as a system where it's not about party because I think the Democrats are racist. I think the Republicans are racist too. It gets to be who is actually going to look above the racism and give you an opportunity. Okay, right. That's the reality of it. All of this Democrat Republican. Democrats have been in charge of all these cities and they hoods and they all know better. Republicans say some of the craziest things I've ever heard. Trump said retweeted some something something real racist. There was a couple of incidents this past week where it was just bad with Trump. So yeah. the, the reality is it's not about party affiliation. It's about us giving us the opportunity economically to be something. To be something. And that's what it really hasn't been given. That's the lie that's been constantly perpetrated, and there's only one answer to that lie. My father did give me that answer, and that answer was go out and start your own business. If you go get a job, you will be discriminated against, and it won't work out well. Now, is there a possibility you could rise to become the head of some great U.S. Fortune 500 corporation? Yes, but is that likely? No. So in lieu of that and understanding that, the best thing perhaps would be for you to go out and start a business and you could trade. You would learn how to be a, a business person. That's what the Jewish people did. Jewish people didn't say, hey, we're going to let you keep taking this hammer and knocking us upside the head. Jewish people said, no, we're going to end up, by getting businesses, controlling trade, especially in New York, because they control the trade in New York, buying property and forcing the world to recognize us. We will become un- avoidable. After the Jews, the Asians did the same thing. Well, you know, the the thing about uh, the reforms that we're seeing, they're not coming from the elected officials. They're coming from we the people, all these movements, all these street movements. And in my lifetime, all the biggest reforms that have come at difficult times that I've observed going back to the 60s until now, have been we the people led the politicians in the sense of compelling and coercing them to make a change. And it's very interesting to see if we the people who have got it figured out and who have formed this community in the streets and changed that into proposed reforms and now pressing for them, will they be able to get these elected officials of either party who lack the backbone to do what's necessary even when they know what it is. And so that'll be the real test. I want to thank you, Bill, for uh, uh, sharing your time and your opinions and your personal stories and experiences to give some thank insight God. to those of us, uh, to those who, myself included, who will listen to this podcast and hopefully be it'll inform their discretion as to how we go forward to make America more perfect than it's ever been, and certainly to restore the republic that's been lost by this despot in the White House.
Perhaps it's because people look out and see a rolling field or enjoy a clear sky that they can't comprehend that our world is under attack in large part by those of us who don't care to preserve and protect the world that we live in. Jefferson, as a planter in predominantly agrarian Virginia, tended to view wealth as a product that comes from the soil, from the earth. Jefferson embraced the notion of usufruct. It's a legal term. As I write this, I think of a fellow tree hugger, Jim Wine, who believes that this is a concept at the heart of all environmental conduct, that is to save the environment. Let me explain. Usufruct is a term that means we have a right to use the soil and the earth, the fruit of earth, but that we must pass it on to the next generation as we found it. In other words, preserve and protect what we've inherited from the last generation so it's available to the next generation. That's not happening. And topsoil just doesn't get replaced easily. Of course, the principle, usufruct, applies to a myriad of resources other than the soil. For instance, the extermination of a salmon fishery through uh, short-sighted hydropower, irrigation, or logging policies. That would also constitute, if you will, an eating up of the usufruct as with the depletion of a freshwater aquifer that takes centuries to recharge itself. The failure to preserve and protect these natural resources creates, among other things, infectious diseases and a pandemic like we're now experiencing. Michael Town, who heads up the Virginia League of Conservation Voters, has been fighting to preserve and protect what we've inherited, and I thought you'd enjoy and learn from his experience. <laughs> We're very lucky to have with us today uh, Mike Town of the Virginia League of Conservation Voters. Mike, I'm glad you could be with us. Thank you very much, John. I'm glad to join you. Uh, happy Independence Day. Well, thank you very much. We're, we're at a time when we're consumed by the coronavirus and a whole variety of national issues. But, you know, as we look to the South and around the world, we still haven't evaded the question of our environmental uh, balance, if you will, our, our safety, the actions that we need to take, and so forth. And I was wondering, in the context of the pandemic, uh, have you noticed changes that both favor the environment and disfavor the environment, or uncover things that we haven't noticed normally? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's, um, for those who uh, get beyond the first page of the newspaper, uh, there have been a number of stories that talk about air quality improvement in cities like Los Angeles and uh, Beijing, and I think that um, it, it just shows that uh, you know humans have an impact on our environment. But it, where some people are kind of focusing on the optimistic side of that conversation, that, that question, um, I think that what the pandemic has also shown us is the negative side of uh, environmental protection, and that is more about health effects and the inner uh, um, uh, the interconnection between human health and the environment. So, for example. Um, I think we all know that uh, the pandemic has disproportionately affected people of color and people who have a, a lower economic or who are you know lower economic runs of the economy um, has uh, affected those with pre-existing conditions. And a lot of that is connected to our uh, physical environment. So people who live in zip codes with worse air quality are more likely uh, to get sicker uh, when they uh, get a lung ailment like COVID-19. And so I think that, um, you know, all these issues, we have so many uh, crises at the moment, it seems, um, uh, you know, uh, whoever's to blame for any of them, we, you know, we can, we can debate, uh, but you have a pandemic, you have an economic recession, uh, we have um, uh, uh, 
racial unrest and systemic racism, uh, and we have global climate change, and all of them are impacted uh, by the environment or vice versa. And I think uh, the pandemic is kind of exposing uh, some of those fractures in our society where uh, a healthy environment could actually lead to uh, better health uh, for our citizenry. Well, Mike, you've you've immersed yourself in this issue for about 25 years, I suppose, and six years with the League of Conservation Voters. And uh, this obviously drives you. What what started you and and made you become concerned, as is a legitimate concern, about the environment over the other challenges we have as a nation and a society? Sure. You know, um, I think if, if you ask a lot of environmentalists, like, where, where did you get your start or where did your passion come from? We, many of us can uh, go back to our youth and, and some experience that we had. You know, for me, it was growing up on the Chesapeake Bay in, in uh, Southern Maryland, in St. Mary's County, Maryland, and going out on the water with uh, my uh, dad's really close friend who had a, a, a crab fishery and helping them pull the pots in and separate the crabs. Um, I also got extremely seasick as a little kid, <laughs> uh, but, I, but I just loved the, the Chesapeake Bay. And then when I went to uh, college, I went to James Madison University out in the Shenandoah Valley. And just fell in love with the, the Shenandoah and uh, with the Blue Ridge and skipped classes to go hiking and, and drinking in the woods. And uh, so, so when I was um, you know, looking for a career, I, I wanted to go into, uh, like, archival work and museums. And, you know, the introvert in me wanted to go hide in the basement and look at old documents. <laughs> and uh, I ended up uh, getting a temporary job with an environmental organization. And it turned into a 25-year career uh, because that's where my passion was. So, you know, where I work now, we do both politics and the environment. And that's really what I've always inspired to do because uh, I've always, uh, you know, my parents were politically uh, connected and, and, and politically, civically minded, um, and uh, you know, raised me, you know, understanding you know the, the the greatness of our country and the greatness of democracy and the importance to be a, a, a good citizen and vote, and um, you know, I now have the opportunity to uh, to put both of those passions together in the work that I do, which is feel pretty lucky. No, it's a worthy ambition to make things better for everyone. And I suppose the top of the scale when we talk about these things is either global warming or climate change. Do you have uh, a summary of how, a glance at where you think we stand right now with climate change? Yeah, you know, as I said a little bit ago, we've you know, got all these crises in, in, that are right here in our face today that uh, we're all talking about, that we're worried about you know, people uh, losing their job or concerned about paying their rent, uh, wondering, you know, like, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter, you know, how, uh, you know, where, why, how profound of a, of, a, of a statement is it that we have to go out there and, and argue that a, a segment of our people, that their lives actually matter. And um, at the same time, in the background, just the earth is getting warmer, the seas are rising, temperatures are going up, and that's just a steady increase that's happening in the background of everything else that's going on around us. Climate change is here. It's here today. Uh, it's, it's getting worse, and we are losing time on addressing it. Now, some states are taking action. Some nations are taking action. For, uh, Virginia, for example, we worked hard this year uh, to pass comprehensive climate legislation called the Clean Economy Act that uh, would require our power plants and, and uh, electric companies to get to 100% uh, clean energy or carbon-free energy by 2050. And for those who live, uh, who have Dominion Energy as your as your electric company, they have to get there by 2045. 
it's on the backs of solar energy, wind energy, and energy efficiency. And we think that this legislation is, is great for a number of reasons. One is not only are we going to reduce our carbon pollution, but we're going to create tens of thousands of jobs, uh, mainly in the communities that need those jobs on the backs of those types of energy sources. It's great. Virginia went from like one of the worst states in the country to addressing climate change to one of the top states, top 10 by far, uh, addressing climate change. Well, it's got to be um, it's got to be exciting to see results like that when you put in the work with the legislature. Oh, completely. And you know, I mean, I think the you know, the legislature is. You know, the, I, I don't envy uh, the tasks ahead of our uh, of uh, those in our you know in our government right now. They've got a lot of challenges ahead, um, but it's wonderful to be able to work with our citizen legislature to start solving some big problems like this. Uh, but Virginia can't solve the problem alone. So, you know, we had to craft legislation that could get the votes to pass, get the governor's signature, but also be a model for other states to emulate so that we can get more states and more countries uh, going in this direction. And carbon from our power plants, that's only one, one piece of the puzzle. Next, we've got to address our transportation sector. 25% of all carbon pollution comes from our transportation sector. So we need clean school buses, clean uh, city buses, we need our cars, we need to move towards more electric vehicles, and we need the infrastructure so that when you drive, you can actually charge your vehicle and get to where, you know, get to your destination. So we have a lot of work ahead of us, uh, but finally we're starting to move down this path where we're making progress, uh, but the clock is ticking. I mean, if we don't uh, seriously address this problem in the next 10 years, we may be out of time. What a, and uh, the, yeah. and that's, 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 a, that's a big, you know, that's a, that's a big problem ahead of us now, uh, that uh, we can't ignore. Now, Mike, uh, not to be a buzzkill, but, you know, Dr. Hansen's been writing for some time that he's concerned about the tipping point. We may not know that we've reached it until it's, right. it's too late. Uh, do you have any feelings currently about this particular challenge? Are we at a point where there is no uh, return, that we've gone too far? Because we, we've adjusted the pollution levels that we've talked about in the air, and uh, we're, we're past some of the earlier targets. So how does, how does that inform our view about where we stand in climate change and pollution? Sure. I mean, I think there's, there are indicators that show that uh, you know, the climate's war warming faster than we predicted and faster than uh, we're acting. So I think uh, recently there was you know, news reports about uh, temperatures in Siberia in the Arctic Circle at like 100 degrees. I mean, that's absurd. Right. Uh, uh, you know, ice, ice shelves in the Arctic are, are melting faster and disappearing earlier than ever before. Our storms are getting stronger. So the indicators there are not uh, optimistic. They're, uh, they're, they're very concerning. Um, but I think that there's, there's a couple points here. One is, uh, even if we hit that tipping point, the worst of the worst is still preventable. And so, although there may be things that, you know, we can only prevent so much, and we can only control what we can control, but if we don't control what we don't control, then it's only going to get worse. Right. And, and, and then the second piece, and, and this is, I think, the most optimistic, is that if we address these issues wisely and uh, collaboratively, then not only do we solve an environmental problem, which is also, also a national security problem and an economic problem, uh, and a healthcare problem, um, but it's uh, it, it's also a way to build economy. Uh, Americans, you know, one of the greatest things for all of our faults as a nation, uh, ingenuity is not our fault. Um, it's not a fault. We we are an extremely productive and creative nation of people, and if we can 
put a man on the moon from zero technology to being able to put the man on the moon in seven years. Uh, think about what we could do with energy generation. Uh, we were, it's already solar energy, wind energy, efficiency measures. Are all, that technology is moving so fast right now that we can't even keep up with our uh, with the way that we write our laws uh, to to meet the technological advances. And so I, I have a lot of I think there's a lot of promise. There's a lot of optimism. Uh, but if there isn't promise and optimism, then we're in big trouble because this this, this problem is going to change um, every aspect of our life and culture if we don't address it and we don't address it. Now, I, you mentioned, uh, you know, informing the discretion of other states to follow our lead when we've done such good things here in Virginia. Is implicit in that the statement that we can't expect much help from the federal government, somewhat like the, the pandemic we're dealing with? And I'm not inviting you to to be partisan, but there is an objective sure. change in the policy at the, in Washington, and it seems to be hands off and let pollution and bad practices prevail. Uh, do you have that sense, and is that a problem that the states can cure without the federal government? It is a major problem, and you know my organization is nonpartisan. We give credit when credit is due, and we hold accountable uh, those who are bad actors. And, you know, so a good example of, of bipartisanship is the Great American Outdoors Act. Um, landmark uh, conservation legislation passed the U.S. Senate with over 70 votes uh, just a week and a half ago. And uh, bipartisan support, big supporters from uh, you know, conservative Republicans in big Western states. And it's because we're bringing driving economic development uh, into uh, these states by preserving land and, and building infrastructure in our national parks and in our in our forests, uh, they're going to benefit the economies and the well-being of the citizens of these states. So the environment isn't necessarily a partisan issue, but for some reason, climate change is. And this president and his administration has not only failed to act, they've gone in the wrong direction. And so uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, he is our biggest roadblock uh, to progress uh, and that progress is not just about a cleaner environment. That progress is about a cleaner environment, a healthier people, and a more prosperous economy. And he has to go if we want to seriously address this problem and, and prevent the worst from happening. Do you take heart from the efforts of uh, Kathy Castor, who's a Democrat of Florida, and she's the chairwoman of the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis? And they're, they're introducing uh, legislation next week, uh, a climate agenda tying the environment to uh, racial justice. Uh, do you, do you have a general feeling about it? Obviously, it's a complex piece of legislation, and it will pass in the House, but it, it probably will be stalled in the Senate and won't be approved by the president. So it would be an agenda for the next Congress. But it is laying down a marker that could be important. Do you have any feeling about, is that an encouraging sign for the those who are concerned about climate change and pollution? Oh, definitely so. I mean, this is uh, very comprehensive legislation. It has broad, uh, broad support. Um, it doesn't have a lot of uh, bipartisan support, but uh, my guess is it would on uh, the floor of the U.S. House. I mean, even in Virginia, when we passed our uh, you know, our comprehensive bill here, um, we're able to say it was bipartisan. Now, we only had one Republican vote in the state Senate, one Republican vote in the House of Delegates. Uh, but, um, you know, we were able to finally break that logjam of climate change being purely partisan. And I think that uh, the House of Representatives is, you know, they're going to be a... You know, obviously, there. I got most issues. Uh, progressives would say that they're ahead of the state of the U.S. Senate and definitely ahead of the president. Um, we get a new. Uh, you know, after election day, there's going to be a new Senate. There's going to be a, uh, uh, you know, a, 
either a second term president or you know or a new president uh, and there's going to be some changes in the House of Representatives. I think that uh, there is an opportunity always uh, after every election to make progress on an issue like this. And as we're seeing, finally, the, the uh, partisan divide starting to crumble around the foundation around climate change. Um, you know, there's Republicans uh, in coastal states, Republicans in uh, big western states that are starting to actually talk about the issue differently and vote a little differently, maybe on the margins, but that's starting to crumble. Um, we really need that to happen if we want to uh, see significant progress uh, coming forward. The House passes a bill, the Senate doesn't have to pass it, but let's at least put it on the table. Let's get uh, the Senate working, and you know, if they want to come up with a different approach, then we can have a, a conference and we can legislate. Um, but uh, obstruction isn't gonna uh, uh, make change. Uh, it's incumbent upon our elected officials to actually do the hard work of finding where that middle ground is, and uh, I'm glad that the House of Representatives is going to put a, a strong marker out there. The uh, you mentioned it already, but in the light of uh, you know Black Lives Matter, meaning that there's a segment of our society that's always suffered, you know, from the very beginning when we said all men are created equal and we didn't treat them that way. Um, we've had this problem, and the environment you mentioned already is a problem that raises the question of systemic racism. <clears throat> How do you connect the environment to systemic racism? Sure, you know I think um, this is a, this is a this is a question I get a lot, uh, especially over the last month, and I think it's pretty simple. You know, uh, Ahmad Arbery was jogging through his neighborhood, going for a run in his neighborhood. And he can't do that without the fear of getting shot, killed in the middle of the street. Um, you can't go bird watching in Central Park in New York City without fear of intimidation and having the cops called on you. Um, Brianna Taylor can't even take a good night's sleep without being shot uh, dead in her bed by police officers. So as an environmental movement, if you can't go bird watching or have a good night's sleep or go jogging in your neighborhood, without fear of death or intimidation, then we failed. We have failed as an environmental community of making sure that our environment is there for everybody. And our environment isn't just a place you go, it's a place around you as well. The air you breathe, the water you drink. We have led uh, communities in, in Michigan who uh, you can't drink the water uh, without getting poisoned. And that's uh, absurd. And if we did more testing, we'd find that there's lead levels and, and water quality uh, in disadvantaged communities all throughout this country. And so as an environmental community, we have failed in, 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 in addressing systemic racism uh, in policymaking, in the laws that we pass, but also in the organizations that we build. And so my organization is, is, is just as much to blame, and we are taking this very seriously and we're taking our own, and owning our own responsibility. Now, it's not just about uh, the, the issues you work on. It's not just about who you hire and the de demographics of your staff which frankly most organizations are pretty darn white, um, or a very white upper middle class uh, community uh, 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 in the environmental community. And we have to change that. Luckily we've started taking steps to do so. We have so much work, more work ahead of us than what's behind us. Uh, and it means changing the institutions. Uh, and it's, there's I think two big reasons why we need to do this. One is the obvious one, because it's the right thing to do. Uh, if we're going to um, fight uh, to make better laws to protect the environment, we need to make sure that those laws benefit everybody and don't put those already burdened at a further disadvantage and don't benefit those who are already privileged more. 
and we have to do a better job of that. But the other reason why uh, that, that this is important is because the world is changing and the country is changing. And so if 20 years from now, the majority of Americans are going to be non-white, if our organizations are still predominantly white, then we're going to become irrelevant. And so there's a, there's a, re, there's a, a, a moral and ethical reason for us to change the, and, to, and to make the connection between racism, systemic racism in our organizations. There's also a pragmatic reason to do it, that if we want to be relevant, if we want our voice to matter, if we want to have influence as, a, as an environmental movement, then we sure as hell better change who, who we are, what, what we work on, what we do, and to make our institutions um, uh, available, uh, attractive to, a broad, to every American, and so that if you work here, you feel comfortable, you know that you have a future, and that we're not putting these artificial barriers uh, in our institutions to prevent people from even entertaining the idea of working for becoming a member of our organization. And so we've, you know, we've, we, we take this very seriously. Luckily, most of our organizations are, you know, have been slapped in the face uh, with these issues. Uh, systemic racism is real in America. We have to address it. And we don't just have to dismantle racism. We have to become anti-racist institutions uh, so that we can help this fight um, throughout our society and make sure that every American can simply just go outside of their house without fear uh, that it may be the last time that they do so. Well, you know, I think that uh, what you say is just marvelous. The standard of civilization is how we treat our own and perhaps also how we treat the environment around us that sustains us, that we preserve and protect it. And I think uh, we're very lucky that the Chesapeake Bay caught your spirit at a young age to bring you to be so productive on such a critical issue of our time. And so I want to thank you, Michael, for spending the time with us to discuss these issues. Uh, you're very welcome. And John, I just want to thank you so much for what you do for uh, you know, getting uh, these messages out uh, and uh, you know, for giving me the opportunity to, to talk to you today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I hope you found our discussion interesting. If you have not yet subscribed, please do, and we'll have another episode next Sunday. Be safe, and we'll talk again next week. Thank you.